question to get us thinking this morning as we come into this last part of our service. How important is the return of Jesus to you? Or to put it another way, how conscious are you of the fact that Jesus is going to return and it might be today? How does that affect your thinking? Of the top 10 things that have given you joy and hope so far this year, how near to the top was the fact that Jesus is coming back? To be honest, it doesn't impact me nearly as much as it should. And I'm conscious that there will be people here this morning for whom this is very new. But it is a very clear teaching of the Bible. As we saw last week, it's possible to think too much about the possibility of Jesus' return. The church at Thessalonica were very aware that Jesus was coming back, to the extent that some of them weren't doing much at all, because they were thinking, why do we need to plant any plant seeds in my garden? Because Jesus will be back before they have a chance to grow. Why do I need to go out and do any work? Because Jesus will be back before I have a chance to spend the money. So a lot of people, some people perhaps, were sitting back and thinking, well, If Jesus is coming back, I don't need to do anything. I'll just rely on the people around me to keep me going, to provide for me. Paul tells them that the command of Jesus to love one another is not to be turned into the assumption that others will provide for us until the end of the week, by which time Jesus will be back. Paul doesn't say that. He says we mustn't act like that. While they wait for Jesus to return, they were to try and show practical love not just expect it. I don't get the impression that we are as aware that the world won't go on forever. Of course, many people, ourselves included, are concerned about the way the world is going, the environment, the wars in the world, particularly in the Middle East at the moment, the state of the economy. These are huge problems that we face. But what we forget, the promise of God in the Bible is that this world will not destroy itself. This world will not be destroyed by a mad dictator or president or whoever might hold the reins of power. This world, actually, the Bible says, has a glorious future, one which will be instigated when Jesus returns. Why don't we think about this all the time? Why is it not so important to us? I've got a few possible reasons. Hang on why maybe we don't think about it. And there are sermons in themselves, so I'm happy to be very quick on this. Firstly, I think we are so good at settling for second best. I think we are so quick to build ourselves a little comfort zone and stay within that and forget the sadness and horror often that there is in the world around us. We think, well, I'm all right because I've got what I need. And we don't think about those who are really struggling, who are living in fear. What we actually mean is my little world, as long as I can protect it, is okay. And we blank out the villages and towns and countries around us where life is really tough. I'm pretty sure if I felt the pain of those around me, of those in the world, I would be praying for the return of Jesus more than I do. 
I think we're also affected by materialism, particularly in the West. And by materialism, I mean the belief that actually what we can see is all there is. We, we forget the spiritual realms. We think that supernatural things never happen. This is obviously a supernatural thing we're looking at this morning. We think, well, those things don't happen, not in the modern world. But that is ridiculous, particularly when it comes to life and death. How do two cells come together and suddenly you've got a person? Suddenly you've got a spiritual entity linked to a little piece of flesh growing inside a woman's womb. That is a supernatural event. And then when you come to the other end of life, you come to death. I have seen people die. I have been present. I have visited dead bodies there is a spiritual dimension there. One minute you've got someone who is really ill and their life is fading, but they're still a person. And then the next minute, they're just a bunch of atoms and chemicals and processes that are slowing down. It changes. Of course, we deal with that by hiding it away. We take away the, the miracle of birth by saying, well, it's all the mother's choice whether there's a life there or not. We take away the, the, the bluntness of death and the change of death by never confronting it. I think that's part of the reason we struggle with the return of Jesus. Because we blank off the supernatural elements of this life. particularly because the supernatural is seen reversed in what we've just read. We've read about dead bodies being raised and joined together with the souls that once called them home. Now that sounds weird, doesn't it? That sounds like the stuff of a horror film or a fantasy film. That is a very worldly and mistaken view, which I think we have been conned into believing. We as a society by our deliberate ignorance of life and how it starts and our aversion to death. There are supernatural events happening all around us. They have happened to us. They will happen to us. The supernatural things in our reading, they may sound really odd to us, but they're not outside of our experience. We just try and ignore them. And what Paul has for us this morning, I think, is going to be a massive help to the Thessalonians and to us as we come to terms with the supernatural events that we have been through and the one that we will go through. The death of people around us, even our own death. So this is the first thing I want us to look at this morning, the problem of death. And, oh yes, the theme this morning is the return of the king. Sorry, I forgot that one. Um, the return of the king. We've been looking at that in... Um, in terms of its implications for our lives, now we're actually looking at the event itself. The problem of death, for a start. The church at Thessalonica, they had a problem. We've seen, haven't we, how they became Christians. They had turned to God, we read in chapter 1, verse 9, from idols to serve the living and true God. And as soon as they did that, they started waiting for his son to come down from heaven, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. That was what the Thessalonians had done. But it wasn't easy. They were persecuted for their faith. As they suffered, they thought, it's okay, Jesus will be with us soon. 
as they lost their jobs, as they had people slandering them, as they were marginalized, as they were imprisoned. They thought, it's okay, this won't go on forever. As they were ridiculed for not getting involved in the pagan practices that were going on in the city of Thessalonica, they thought, it's all right. Jesus will be here soon. And so they kept going, they kept loving each other. They kept resisting sin, they kept serving God. They kept doing the things they ought to do, looking after themselves, working with their hands, all the while waiting for Jesus' return and the prospect of being with Jesus forever. Jesus is coming back, they said, so keep going. They looked forward to the return of Jesus. And they were working hard in the light of his coming back. The word used for the return of Jesus in verse 15 is the Greek word parousia. You might never have heard of that. I hadn't. In fact, well, I had, but I never knew what it meant until I looked it up. Parousia was a word that was used when a great emperor came to visit. He came back, maybe he'd been leading a campaign or a great general, and everyone was really excited that the emperor was coming back, and they would all go out to meet him, and there would be a great party, a massive celebration. That is how the return of Jesus was described by the Thessalonians. That was their life. But then something unexpected happened. People, Christians, men and women who loved Jesus, grew old and got sick. It doesn't matter, they thought. Jesus is coming back until one of them died. They weren't, expecting, they weren't expecting that. Their hopes for the future were pinned on Jesus returning and how they were going to see it and how everything was going to get sorted out. They really thought they weren't going to die before Jesus returned. Now someone had died. Did that mean that the person who had died had missed out on this great event when they were going to see Jesus. They're not going to be around when Jesus returns. The return of Jesus was going to be the best thing ever. Would those who had been buried miss out on that? And if their friends had missed out, would they miss out as well? These were deeply disturbing thoughts. Paul has obviously heard about their plight and their worries, and so he now takes a little detour to address their worries. I love verse 13. <laughs> I have spoken on this at a few funerals. It's felt like I've been preparing for my own funeral as I've been preparing this this week, and I've loved it. Brothers and sisters, Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Sleep, all through this reading, is a euphemism for death. It used to really amuse me. In a plaque in a church where I grew up, there was um, an inscription on the wall in loving memory of Esme Thurkettle, or whatever her name was, who fell asleep on the 1st of September, 1892. I thought, poor woman, faithful soul in the church. She'd been there every week, you know, come rain or shine. She'd been a real stalwart in the church. She must have been to have this plaque on the wall. Then once she slips up, once she dozes off in a service, and that's it. They re recorded that for the whole of immortality, for eternity. That's not what it means at all. Falling asleep is a picture of death in the Bible. And Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about those 
who have died. Now, what Paul is about to say is not going to remove the need for tears at funerals. Nothing like that is on Paul's mind. Some people try and act like a funeral is nothing. Some people give the impression that nothing has changed. That's rubbish. Death may have been welcomed. We've had some funerals recently where the deaths have been releases for the people who have suffered. suffered. And we may be glad that our loved one is no longer suffering. But we still miss them. Some Christians get this wrong and try and pretend there is no sadness at the death of a loved one. That is to deny the seriousness of death. The seriousness that had Jesus weeping violently at the tube of a close friend. Paul is not saying what he's about to tell us will remove grief from funerals. He's talking to Christians. He has something brilliant to say, but even so, he doesn't say he's going to remove all grief. What he says is that when we grieve as Christians over the death of a Christian brother or sister, we don't like grieve like those who have no hope. The problem of death is that so often it is hopeless. Paul says there is hope, even in death. Funerals are sad times. Being separated by death is massive, but the Christian's grief is not a hopeless grief. Paul says they're uninformed, and so they grieve as, they have, as if they have no hope. So Paul wants to inform them. How do you inform someone? Well, you tell them the truth, and that's what we see next. The truth about Jesus is where Paul goes. This is where they will be able to find hope in the face of death. Very briefly, Paul tells us three things about Jesus. First of all, he says Jesus has defeated death in verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and he rose again. Jesus died. Up until that point, death had been quite effective. If you take a personification of death, someone in a black hood with a scythe, death had wandered around the world for the whole of time, taking people. Death had never failed. 100% of people had died. As Jesus died on the cross, death is there in my imaginary thoughts. And as Jesus died, death walks away and rubs his hands and says, there's another one, tick him off the list. No one had escaped. Death is so powerful. But then, Jesus rises. On Easter Sunday morning, the power of death is in tatters. Jesus defeated death. Jesus died. Without the cross, we can't be forgiven. God made him who had no sin be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Bible says in himself, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die for sins and live for righteousness. The truth about Jesus is Jesus has died to defeat sin. Jesus lives and so will we. We don't grieve as those without hope because Jesus 
has died and is alive. But it's not just what happens to Jesus. Paul goes on to say, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him, those who have died as Christians. Jesus died and Jesus rose, so death is defeated. Now anybody who is a Christian will also die, yes, but they will also be raised. We talk about being a Christian as following Jesus, don't we? And that means following the path his life took through death to resurrection. Christians will die physically. And when they die, they go to be with Jesus. And that's a good thing. But they will be raised. When Jesus returns, he will not return alone, Paul says. He will bring with him every single person who he has saved who died in him when we bury a Christian loved one, it's not an eternal separation. It's a temporary parting. Death is not the end. The Bible says Jesus is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. That means Jesus was the first to come back to life, to be resurrected. But he's the first of many. That is our hope for those who die in Christ. That is what will happen. But what about the living Will there be any advantage at all for those who are still alive when Jesus returns? The Thessalonians had assumed that if you had to be alive at the ret- you had to be alive at the return of Jesus to share in his victory. Paul has just knocked that one on the head. He's saying, no, people who have died, they will be there when Jesus returns. So does that mean it's better to die? Are there advantages in dying first? Paul thought so in terms of the, compan- of the comparison with life. He says in Philippians, I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is better by far, but for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. To die to go to be with Jesus is wonderful. But actually, if Jesus wants me here, then this is where I will stay. But in terms of eternity, there is nothing to separate those who are alive at the return of Jesus and those who die and are raised. Total equality, if you like. Verse 15, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. At the return of Jesus, those living and those newly resurrected will not have any advantages over each other. Death will be unpleasant for us, or it might be. Death does hurt us and those we love. It does separate. It causes loads of tears. Grief is real. To deny that is to cause even more grief and mental anguish in life. But death isn't the end. And ultimately, in terms of the return of Jesus and the rest of eternity, death has nothing that it can do to us. Nothing that it can say to us that will be troubling us in 5,000 years' time or whenever. That is the hope. We will die unless the Lord returns. But we don't have to grieve as those without hope. One last thing, what will that look like? Paul has just said in broad brush terms, this is going to happen. Jesus will come back and it'll be brilliant. 
We don't have to worry about the future. Then Paul goes into a little bit of detail in verses 16 and 17. Not much, but it's there, so we need to look at it this morning. What would it look like when Jesus returns? What will the return of the king be, look, be like? Paul tells us in verse 16, the Lord himself will return. That means it will be Jesus, not an angel, not an ambassador, the Lord who died and rose, the Lord who was last seen on a hillside outside Jerusalem, of whom the angel said, this same Jesus, the baby of Bethlehem, the calmer of storms, the suffering servant, the son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me, all descriptions of Jesus, this is the one who will return. Paul says he will come down from heaven. Now, is that literal? Will Jesus come out of the sky? Is that metaphorical? In you know, our minds, we think of heaven as a better place than this, so it's higher. I don't know what it will look like. We need to be careful about being too dogmatic. Paul says he will return with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. What is that going to be like? I don't really know. What we do know is when he first came, he came quietly as a helpless baby. Now Paul is saying, one day in power he will come again. We sing that sometimes. No one will miss it. Again, don't get caught up in the literal. This is the typical Perusia language. This is the sort of thing that happened when an emperor came to visit. There was a loud trumpet call. There would be someone with a very loud voice shouting out to everybody, who's coming? That's the sort of thing we have here, unmissable. I forgot to say, didn't I? There's four R's in Paul's description. The first is Jesus will return. Then there is the resurrection. The dead in Christ will rise first, Paul says. What will that look like? I don't know. It's difficult not to think about a Michael Jackson video or something like that. We don't know. Will it be graves opening up, dust and ashes reforming? I think it's got to be physical, hasn't it? If the physical bodies are going to be there... like we were when we were alive, but different, recognizable, like Jesus was after his resurrection, but sometimes very different, reunited with the souls that we once called home, with the, yeah, the bodies reunited with the souls that once called the bodies home. I don't think we should spend too long thinking about exactly what that would look like in practice. We don't need to know. But the dead in Christ will be raised first, Paul says. So don't worry about the people who have died. They'll be there before the people who are still alive. But only just before. Because straight after that we get the third R. And this is a strange one. I don't particularly like this word. The rapture. It sounds a bit odd. But Paul explains exactly what he means. We who are still alive after that will be caught up. Christians living will be caught up. What does that mean? Again, we'll be all sucked up into the air. That doesn't sound likely to me, but it might be. But I think the sense is just as the dead are raised, so we will be raised. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we will be changed. It's not like I'm going to have to go, if Jesus returns now, I'm not going to have to go through the rest of eternity with this body. It'll look a bit like this, but it will be better. It will work, most of it. Well, most of it does work now, but it will work perfectly then. Whatever it looks like, don't worry about the details. The sense that just as the dead will be raised, so we will be raised if we're alive. In a moment, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, in the twinkling of an eye, 
But that's not the best bit. The best bit is the reunion, or the next best bit is the reunion, which we read of in verse 17. We that are left will be caught up together with those who have died and have just been raised in the clouds. This is the point as far as the Thessalonians are concerned. You don't have to worry about those who have gone on ahead. You will be back. You will be with them together in the clouds. Now again, you're thinking, wow, that's going to be dangerous. Can't you fall off clouds? I don't think it's that sort of cloud. It might be, but clouds in the Bible is a picture of God's glory. We will be together surrounded by the glory of God, which is practical and tangible, and certainly not something you can fall off. We will be together in glory. I said that was the best thing. It isn't the best thing at all, is it? There is an even greater reunion. Together we will meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. That is the high point. That is eternal life. I sometimes think we get too excited about the people we will be with in heaven. We miss people. We long to see them again. We will. But this is the greatest joy. We will be with them, with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That is our future, if we're Christians. No matter how bad our lives get, that is our future, and it is totally glorious. No matter what happens to us, no matter what those around us do to us, no matter what happens to them, even death, we have this future. Now, we might not be able to understand how that could possibly happen, given the things we have to battle with now. How can that possibly be undone? How can the scars that we are picking up now and carrying be healed? This is the promise of God. This is our sure and certain hope. And no matter how good our lives seem, this is infinitely better. How could that be when we have so many blessings now, perhaps you're thinking? This is the promise of God. This is what we have to look forward to if we're in Christ, if we're Christians. If you're not sure about that, or you are sure, and you're sure you're not a Christian, well, we can do something about that. Please talk to me afterwards. We're running a Christianity Explored course starting in a couple of weeks' time. We've got three people so far. I would love to have some more. If you would like to be involved in that, please do let me know. Christianity Explored is a, it's called a course. It's not that formal. It's just an opportunity to sit down and read a bit of the Bible and for me to try and explain what it means and for you to tell me if you want to what a little rubbish you think it is or you don't understand it at all and can I go through it again? That's the sort of thing. It's meant for me to be as uncomfortable as possible and for you to be as comfortable as possible in a front room with some coffee. If you'd like to be involved in that, please do talk to me. Or else... Just cry out now, Lord, I don't understand a lot about this, but please will you save me? Please will you help me to know this? And if we do know this already, A, be encouraged. 
Because this is our future. No matter what happens to you this week, this is how it ends for you. And this is absolutely brilliant. And Paul doesn't just say, encourage yourselves. He says, encourage each other. So when you get that and you see me looking a bit low, come along to me and say, Dave, no matter how bad it is, Jesus is coming back. This will all be sorted. Or if you're thinking, I'm looking a bit settled and a bit happy with my life, come along to me and say, Dave, yeah, I'm glad you're getting on well, but remember, you've got something far better coming. And this is what I need to be trying to do for you as well. Encouraging each other to remember these truths, which so easily get blanked out of our minds as we get back into the day-to-day realities of life. The spiritual dimension is still very real, even though we blot it out sometimes. A lot of people get really put off by this, and they think it's really weird and really odd. And sometimes it does sound like that, but that's not the purpose. It's meant to encourage us. A lot of people get really annoyed by it, and they start arguing, ah, you said it happens straight away, but I think it should take a bit longer. And these clouds, they are real. No, that's missing the point entirely. If we start arguing over these things, we haven't got it at all. Paul's whole purpose in telling us these things is to be encouraged And so that's what we've got to try and take away. Be encouraged by these wonderful thoughts. Not confused, not scared. Take hold of the hope that they give us.